This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off for a couple of days. Great to have you here with us, as always. Early reaction to the apology from Toronto Police Chief James Raymer to Black people in this city for the systemic racism and disproportionate use of force suggests Black people have not been looking for an apology. Instead, they are looking for political change and action that eliminates the need for any more apologies. That is from a statement issued by the No Pride in Policing Coalition, founded in 2018 to sustain the demands of Black Lives Matter Toronto. The same organization is also calling for the defunding and abolishment of Toronto police. Now, we especially would like to hear from you today, if you are Black, what this apology means or doesn't mean, your personal experience with Toronto police, and what action you feel is needed to move on in a meaningful way. The numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Joining us today to talk about the new Toronto Police Report and Chief Raymer's apology, civil liberties lawyer Julian Falconer and Dr. Wesley Critchlow, professor and chair of the President's Equity Task Force in the Faculty of Social Science and Humanities at Ontario Tech University. And I believe we are still trying to get Dr. Critchlow on the line. So, uh, Julian Falconer, uh, I'll say hello to you first. Good afternoon. What do you think, uh, Julian, about these findings? Any surprises for you? And in terms of the apology, uh, what that might or might not mean? I would start with the findings. Uh, What the findings sadly confirm is what folks, frankly, on the ground and in communities already know. And uh, it, it remains... Uh, absolutely tragic and you know people experience this in real time uh, with their kids uh, with their uh, their brothers their sisters their family Uh, you you have parents that are concerned about when their youth are going to go out for the evening what is going to happen to them and their welfare in interactions with people who are supposed to be in charge of keeping them safe so you know, the problem with all of this is the navel-gazing uh, is now a stretch, right? Yes, this makes a perfect case for why race-based data needs to be compiled in a responsible way. Um, but, uh, you know, an apology isn't going to do it. Uh, there needs to be an action plan. This notion of ongoing consultation, it may be laudable, but it's the opposite of an action plan. And I understand uh, there are those who would say that they're betwixt and between, they're caught, because if they implement action without consultation, they'll be criticized. There has been so much consultation. Mm -hmm. The Human Rights Commission released interim findings uh, a number of years ago, 2018, I believe is the year. This, you know, goes back to the Cole Gittins report in the mid-90s concerning systemic discrimination in the justice system. Surely by now, (laughs) some actions could have been announced today, right? And that's the concern, is that we are veritable gerbils on a wheel. Same old, same old. This is bad. We acknowledge it. It's terrible. But no actual implementation strategies. That's the problem here. Was there anything significant about today's report and today's apology? Did this need to happen? Did Toronto police need to compile their own race-related data uh, in order for us, for them to move forward, for Toronto police to move forward? 
first of all, I want to be clear, in December 2018, um, the Human Rights Commission, in relation to the Toronto Police Service, just as an example, uh, released data that uh, demonstrated between 2013 and 2017, so over a four- or five-year period, a black person was 20 times more likely than a white person to be in a fatal shooting by a Toronto police, member of the Toronto Police Service, Right. These are just examples of data that were released how many years ago I'm talking about? I'm, I'm, I'm talking about almost four years ago that data was released. So we're not into action plans yet. We're still into apologies and talking about, thinking about responses. Right. So it almost it almost feels like this, this report was not necessary based on evidence that has been compiled in the past. Well, so that's where I... That's where I'm not criticizing the gathering of the data. The latest data has some very important stats. Let me give you an example. Um, according to the collection, according to the data now released, and please understand, I'm seeing this in real time. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm picking up uh, numbers that strike immediately. Uh, uh, you know, as 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 very concerning. Black residents accounted for 39.4 percent of use of force incidents. They are four times higher than their share of the population. Right. Because I can tell you black people are not 39.4% of the population, right? Yes. And, and, and so I, I, I don't say that the gathering of the data is a mistake. What I say is you've known enough so that, you know, listen, the first time my son apologizes for transgressing the rules, I take it, you know, it, it, I take it sincerely. If my son keeps breaking the same rule, right, and all he does is keep apologizing, it starts getting empty. 100%, yeah. Right? So uh, now moving to the systemic level, Chief Raymer needs an action plan. And let me say something else. Where is the chair of the Police Services Board? Because understand the civilian enforcement body that is supposed to oversee, the civilian oversight body that is supposed to be the community's assurance that the police are not a law unto themselves is the police services board. So the leadership that you're supposed to see is a combination of a police board that has robust governance and oversight so that they're able to stand at a distance, not simply a cheerleader for the police, along with the chief of police. So that's another piece that's missing here, right? So what do you make of that absence? So all along, you have had this difficulty that these police boards, to one degree or another, lack that understanding of their role. And in, in my mind, if you look back to uh, past very serious transgressions, who has been the heart of the criticisms? It's been the absence of leadership by police services boards. And, you know, uh, I don't, I don't think you have to stray very far. The Morden report in relation to G7 and, and, and the realities around, and I'm sorry, G20, the realities around uh, the, uh, uh, the police uh, excesses talked specifically about the Toronto Police Services Board's failure to understand its role. Well, here we are in 2022. And we are facing precisely the same question. Do they understand their role in terms of civilian oversight over the police service? I'd like to to bring in Dr. Wesley Critchlow now, professor and chair of the President's Equity Task Force in the Faculty of Social Science and Humanities at Ontario Tech University. Dr. Critchlow, thanks for being with us. Oh, hi. A quick quick, quick correction. I'm no longer the chair of the task force. It's finished. Okay, okay, that's in the past. That, okay. That's when you pull things from the website. My apologies. <laughs> oh, no, no, thank you. Um, your reaction to today's report and apology as a black person? Uh, first, um, uh, thank you for the opportunity to share my views. Uh, it's not new. So the previous caller was quite clear on, on, on highlighting what previous studies have done. And we can go way back to, to um, 
1978 with Andrew Buddy Evans when this work started for lack of an, for lack of documented. So the community since 1978 has been addressing these issues. And as a result, we have had a number of police reforms. So there, what I question with this, this new data is not that it's not good, but I see this data as another way of, of getting in the way of other structural reforms that should have happened a long time ago, that this is now coming out saying we need to study, study, study. It's becoming torturous. Police collection of data is becoming so torturous that it is becoming a painful something to read, look at, and, 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 and uh, make sense of that you give up. It is almost beating you down into social debt, right? Where you feel, okay, well, what can we do? So well, I also question to what extent are the researchers involved in the community to get a counter perspective from the community about their own sort of data collection on policing issues. We have the police data right now. We don't have the community data. And just remember the policing is a conservative body. I'm not criticizing the police for not uh, for, for their data collection and they, you know, however they still choose to collect it. But what the police collect and, and give to the researchers is what the researchers have to work with. I question the 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 the, the degree by which they say it, it, we are stopped. I think we are stopped at a much higher alarming rate than they have presented here. Ah, and I think um, when we look at earlier studies, the Coles Gittins report works by uh, Chris, Chris Williams and a whole slew of other people, the Ontario Human Rights Commission, the work by um, Black Action Defense Committee. We have seen that these numbers are higher than what has been presented here today. So, so, uh, so doctor, some... doctor, help us understand, and from a Black person's perspective, as well as a, a scholarly perspective, what are we missing here? What information, what real we experience? Are, yeah, we are missing the voices of those impacted on the, this. What we have here right now is what I will call um, uh, sort of ag- aggregate of data of the entire population. We don't have specific disaggregated data of Regent Park, Jane Finch, community housings, etc. We don't have disaggregated data of each community to really highlight the, 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 uh, the brevity of the problem. When you do an average, you, 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 you'd, you'd dilute the, the seriousness of the problem by doing average. But if we do disaggregated by communities, we would see a different picture. So if we have to look at targeted areas and, and understand how targeted areas are being uh, 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 really an injustice. This report does an injustice to the targeted communities because it, it, it almost says, that, you know, to some degree, um, the average is this. Therefore, uh, you know, we can slightly improve this through some reforms. So the self-reporting studies is what we need to look at mm-hmm. from communities. Okay. How, do, how does the police arrive at this number is what we need to know more about. Um, law, I mean, at the end of the day, we can't do work without the police. We have to work with the police. So if the police is about openness and accountability, there has to be some more accountability structures put into place for an independent community body of experts to be able to review what, it, what the police is handing over before it before it's analyzed. Okay. Who the police hires as consultants need to be uh, also go through the community some more and, and vetted and, and talked about and create community consultations in a way that is meaningful and specific to each community and not a general applied methodology. I want to let you know that the phone lines are open and particularly I'd like to hear from people who are black or people of color who live in the city of Toronto or in the GTA, Southern Ontario, personal experiences, having been targeted as a person of color, as a black person, what that experience has been, or maybe, you know, as we speak to Zoomer radio listeners, most of you are mature, you've had a lifetime of experience. Uh, how has that been for you in your life? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. It's Jane for Libby, along with Dr. Wesley Critchlow and civil liberties lawyer Julian Falconer. Dr. Critchlow, um, let's expand on what you were just saying. Help us understand what a person would experience living in a targeted area. Well, the data from targeted areas, and uh, um, my colleague, uh, Mr. Faulkner, can speak to some of this from the work he has done, uh, the work on the African Canadian Legal Clinic, 
Black Action Defense highlights a much higher number rate of cuffs than this. Uh, and, and if we look at targeted communities, then we would see the data is lacking the specificity of how this is impacting those communities and the kind of intervention that is going to be required, that each community is not going to necessarily require the same interventions for addressing these problems. So the police comes up with an anti-black racism training to address a, a, a problem of average, when in fact what we need to address is the specificity of those communities. And by not doing that, we, we run the risk of, 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 of concealing as much as we're revealing. And, and, and the 50 years of torturous data collection has done nothing in the way of questioning the assumptions about the premises of how research is done. We need to question the extractive nature of research that does not rely on the, on the experiences of the folks impacted. Julian, would you like to expand on what Dr. Critchlow is speaking about there? Sure. I, I will start with this, though, because I think if we leave the, uh, the, the, the movement around uh, the defunding of police uh, out of the discussion, I think we make a mistake because these are words that uh, still resonate with people. So I, I agree uh, with, with uh, the professor's points. I, I simply want to emphasize that, you know, what this triggers is folks attempting to try to determine how to basically, you know, change the paradigm, build a better mousetrap, if you will, because obviously this isn't working. But what I would say is when you use the words defund the police, as an example, because these words are going to be out there all day now, you're, you're actually taking away from the discussion. As I understand it, folks who accept that the police uh, are here to stay, and, and I represent numerous Indigenous police services. So I want to be clear. Uh, I think they're an essential ingredient of society. But how we fund police services is a live issue. Because obviously, if you think about it, with these statistics, and by the way, we've left out the data they have published on the treatment of Indigenous people, right? Because we're, we're absolutely correct in, in focusing on the disturbing numbers around Black communities. But the numbers relating to Indigenous people are extremely concerning. Same issues, in my mind, have to ask ourselves, how are we spending the money? And the problem is, the model that we have spent all our time on is based on this conventional view of police officers as experts in the use of force, with training that honestly, Jane, dates back 30 to 40 years, I just recently sat on a panel on the same issue. They are being trained with the same techniques that over decades, despite the changes in societal behaviors, the changes in societal expectations, there's a lot of the same old. And so my point is, we should be looking far more closely and putting far more time into the uh, interdisciplinary models where you have mental health uh, uh, and health professionals who are working with police officers to de-escalate situations where you're actually able to avert deaths that ordinarily would have happened. We should be looking at psychological screening, serious screening that addresses the fact that there is a certain type attracted to policing that is not helpful. Well, right. And and it, would it be fair to say, and Julian, we should also point out that you are a biracial person of a, a black Jamaican father and a white mother. So uh, in terms of your personal experience, do you feel this more deeply? Well, I, w- what I would say is that we should, I appreciate that your acknowledgement, Jane, but I would say we, we all need responsibility for this. We all should recognize that the Toronto Police Service has gone a long way in, in trying to uh, reflect the demographic of the city. In other words, uh, it's, it's changed in its decades of efforts of recruitment. The, the bigger issue now, and, and I say this bluntly, is that the people we attract to policing aren't, are going to be it, too often the kinds of people that get themselves into trouble with biases. Not everybody. I don't want to paint with the same brush. Yeah, that's important. So, yeah. Yeah. But, but I, I, I can't emphasize enough that when we use these words, defund the police, what I understand, they're not actually talking about abolishing the police 
uh, services, mm-hmm. they're talking about reallocating. Right. And if you're talking about reallocating, the answer is, okay, what should we be spending more money and what, what should we be spending less money on? Well, that's a lot of toys that they have for use of force, right? Have you looked at the belt? That's an enormous amount of money we spend teaching police how to use force. My question is, and I know we don't, we don't spend near the money we need teaching them how not to use force. And that goes right down to their training models and the people who do the training. Julian, I, Julian, yep. I need to follow yep. up because it, I do think it's very important. Uh, you mentioned the kind of people who are attracted to police, to policing. Right. Uh, you know, help us. It's, it's sort of, I guess, would be an assumption that there is a training program to be a police officer, but not necessarily do you have higher education beyond high school? Not necessarily have you been educated uh, about society in any sort of real way? Is, is that a correct reflection of the individuals that are attracted to policing? Uh, respectfully, Jane, it's not. So it's interesting. Uh, the standards, uh, the education standards for police services have by and large uh, truly increased so that uh, policing in terms of its compensation and who it attracts often are attracting uh, university-educated or at least college-educated candidates. The the problem is that policing, by its definition, right, is is expected to be people who uh, uh, are prepared to, are signing up to engage in confrontation. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so the people, yes. right, that who want to be guardians, right, um, too often, I'm not saying all the time, too often are the personality profiles that are going to operate on bias. And, and my simple point is that if we're going to talk meaningfully about how we should spend resources, we need to get into that question of who becomes a police officer and how. But honestly, because of the numbers being paid out to police officers, pensions and the like, you're actually attracting higher educated people. I'm a lawyer, and I can tell you, knowing over 50,000 of them in this province, just because you got a fancy degree doesn't make you necessarily a great person. Right? No, very true. Uh, Dr. Critchlow, would you like to expand on that? On the issue of who is attracted to police? Right, right. And how to, to make sure that you're vetting out biases in candidates who would be police officers. Well, I, again, I go back to the community perspective. Where, where does the community sit on the interviewing, hiring, and training process? The community is impacted. What role do they play? Uh, we, 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 we study the communities impacted. We extrapolate that data, that information, and then we silence their voices in the process of reform. I, I believe there has to be a role for community involvement in the selection and hiring and training of officers so that some of the, the, the sort of issues that uh, is confronted on a daily basis that they experience in terms of real-life situations can become teaching or training models in, in the education. So to what extent can we have community members uh, impacted by, by, the, by the system involved in the hiring um, and interviewing and training process should be something to be considered. And that I see as a, as a, as a, a genuine good gesture of goodwill towards shifting and opening how we hire and recruit. The, the training for police, the recruitment for police officers, I often give references for students, and the interview, interview questions are, 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 that we get asked uh, are <laughs> sometimes beyond our, 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 our um, expectations to answer. So, now, when you, when you put this in front of young folks who are now graduating from high school or university, and, uh, and as Julian said, you know, undergraduate degrees and graduate degrees, with, a, with an interest in wanting to become police officers, I think you often will say the right things in a job interview. But there have got to be ways in which we can test folks beyond simply interviewing them um, and, and simply selecting them on their, on, their, on their performance applications of passing these tests. So how, how do we get to address the questions of race, not racism, but anti-black racism, anti-indigenous racism? We, we speak about racism and it, and it tends to conflate and it, it oversimplifies the, the, the specific forms of racism that different populations face. 
black males and black females being strip searched and indigenous people being strip searched. How do you talk about that in a training right. that, that people understand dehumanization and, and, and the whole history of how that is tied to colonization, slavery, and the trauma that it impacts their entire family? So I think the training has to be updated, but I don't think it has to be done necessary only and by academics. I think we have we have made this an academic exercise too much, and we need to turn this over to the community and train communities to be able to ask the right questions and, and make the right interventions. Okay, we're, com- Jane, yeah, we're coming to the... Sorry, Julian, point. go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. The, the screening that we're talking about and, and selection of officer candidates, let's talk about selection of leaders. So we are now, I don't know what time in the day, 12.30 in the day, there is not a statement by the chair of the police board out on this. There is an apology by the chief of police, but nothing other than we'll consider things at a next board meeting. So you have to, and you look back at G20, and you look at the criticisms from 2010 about the absence of leadership of the police board. What is our training for our police board members? What is our training for our leaders? I can tell you it's extremely deficient. And so you have people occupying positions of governance and leadership who are supposed to be the civilian oversight body for the police are supposed to be the community's assurance that the community's in control. And the the screening for those positions is extremely thin. I simply point out to you right now, as we have a crisis situation, how come we've heard cricket from the civilian oversight body? Yes, that's well, that is a good question. And, and what would you say is the answer to that? They don't know their role. Yeah, It's a simple lack of understanding of their role. And so they put the chief of police out front, right? And he takes the flack. But the point is, isn't it essential that community has a sense that there is actually civilian guidance of this police service and civilian responsibility? And that's the problem. I don't think that kind of training of members of police boards is, exists in this province. It just doesn't. What do you make, uh, and I'll go over to Dr. Critchlow, we're, we're running a bit short on time, but I, I'm fascinated by what both of you have to say. Um, the organization No Pride in Policing Coalition, as part of their statement today, they say only a political intervention can prevent the next apology. They are calling on city council who they say have heard the demands from black people and from many others to defund and ultimately abolish Toronto police and redistribute its budgets to fund housing, food, public transit, and other life-giving supports. Uh, what is your reaction to that as, as a solution, doctor? Um, we know defunding as a word that is used. The way we deploy the word defunding has to be changed. Mm-hmm. So we need to change the language to say probably a reallocation of funding to the following programs. So I would like us to abandon the word defunding because the reality is we can't do without the police, right? So we have to live with the police and we have to work with the police. So the question is, how can we examine the police budget to understand things like discretionary funding, discretionary budgets? The things that we think can be shifted over to those areas of housing, mental health, um, and what I would also think about as reparative, as restorative, um, as a reparation for police and injustices. We need to start talking reparations for the histories of police injustices in the country. And reparations can be simple things like ensuring that black youth have uh, scholarships for universities, lifelong scholarships. Um, and reparations could be things like even having your first loan paid for by somebody to get your housing. You know, we need to think more imaginatively and creatively about what reparations could look like for families impacted by the criminal justice system. Because when you're impacted by the criminal justice system, it impacts your income, your education, your mental health. And it's a complex system perspective that impacts different parts of your system's life. So how can we think about moving beyond the discussion about reparation to also, uh, um, I mean, uh, um, uh, defunding, to looking at reparations in ways that can redress some of these measures, offering monetary value and redress is, is obviously one way. We already do this with Ontario Human Rights, but it, but it has to be go beyond the individual but and recognize the family and the community. 
So it, it could involve self-conscious move by government officials to employ some moral standards rather than legal standards only mm-hmm. uh, around police killing and, so the, and police injustices. So how do we move from a legal standard purely to uh, engage in centrist actions that can generate fresh moral wrongs and moral understanding is, is one way, I think. So the, the question around defunding, we, I, I think we get it, it, it often gets misunderstood. But as, as my previous colleague Julian said, it's about how do we reallocate mm-hmm. resources to commute to areas in which often folks who are in, uh, impacted the most and most disadvantaged by the system can have their quality of life fulfilled. And so I think this is the kind of reparative uh, reparations that I think we need to start talking about and reparations in a way of recognizing wrongs and creating them through education, mental health, etc. Okay, Julian, final word to you on this segment. Well, the, uh, I agree with Dr. Critchlow, and I, I would add that, you know, we, we want to be high level, but sometimes we should get back in the weeds with the numbers. In addition to my point that 39.4% of use of forces were on black people, the numbers they gave us are that they've just released is they've pointed out that black people were 1.2 times more likely, right, to be service calls classified as violent by the police. But listen to this. Indigenous people were 1.4 times more likely to be service calls classified as violent by the police. Now, 1.2 means there's a 20%, as I read it, 20% increase compared to the rest of the population that black people would be classified as violent incidents. And for Indigenous people, there was a 40% increase above the mean if it was Indigenous people. All my point is, Jane, that we know there's a problem. We should continue to measure it because whatever we put in place to address this, you're only going to know if it's working if you're evaluating and measuring outcomes. I have no problems with that. But you would have thought that the Toronto Police Services Board today would have been unveiling an implementation plan. I mean, you can consult till the cows come home, but that just becomes an excuse for inaction, right? Mm-hmm. No, They've that that, that really was that <laughs> really was the missing piece today, Julian. That's right. They've had since 2018. They know about this. Mm-hmm. So inaction isn't an excuse. The report is by Justice Morden from the G20 incident, uh, a two, uh, an incident that dates back to 2020. And Justice Morden did a report on how the Toronto Police Services Board doesn't know its job. And all we're finding out in 2022 is the same old, the Toronto Police Services Board still does not know its job. We will have to leave it there for today, but I thank you both for your personal and uh, professional insights. It's been really fascinating. Thank you. An honor. My pleasure. Civil Liberties lawyer Julian Falconer and Dr. Wesley Critchlow, professor of social science and humanities at Ontario Tech University. Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, and we've got to pay some bills. So coming up in the second half of Fight Back, is it the right time to be lifting the COVID vaccine mandates for travelers? We discuss with a panel of experts next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns for Free For All Friday. Starting Monday, the COVID vaccine mandates for plane and train travelers within Canada and on outbound international flights are suspended. Health information will still need to be provided through the Arrive Can app and masking in airports and on planes and trains leaving or arriving in Canada will continue to be required. It was just last week the federal liberals also announced they're getting rid of random COVID testing at airports for vaccinated travelers. The feds say science points to the reasoning for dropping the COVID vaccine mandates, but most certainly they must have been motivated to improve the delays and backlogs at the airports, specifically Pearson Airport. Joining us to discuss this latest development, Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure Inc., Trevor McPherson, president and CEO of the Mississauga Board of Trade, and Dr. Barry Pecos, York Region's medical officer of health. Hello to all of you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Hello. 
Dr. Pecos, I'll start with you. Does this latest decision make sense from a scientific point of view? So that is a difficult and a long, uh, a long question to answer. So um, it's very clear that this had to happen uh, or was, was bound to happen at some point. Um, nothing changed overnight between last week and this week in terms of making that decision. Um, but it, it does make sense from the perspective of most Canadians and where we are in the pandemic right now, certainly in Ontario, overall in Canada. However, um, that does still mean that uh, air travel is going to be um, somewhat less safe for certain people. And, and meaning, you know, there are some people who are immunocompromised, who are anxious about it, but, but who, you know, where there is a, a genuine um, risk uh, that, that they would experience. It's a small number of people. Um, but for those people, you know, I, I certainly uh, feel for them because this does put them in a more difficult situation for all other people. Uh, especially people who are not vaccinated and are wanting to travel, I'm sure this would be a relief. So there's there's definitely many sides to this. From a scientific perspective, you know, when you ask me that question, I need to always say there's a vaccine science perspective, there's a public health science, but there's also a social science and a political science perspective. And all of those are scientific and valid and all need to be considered. Well, how much do you think the backlogs and the delays at Customs at Pearson Airport played into making this decision in addition to the science? Well, of course, that makes that 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 is going to be part of it, and and I think that's part of that is also is the testing, of course, and and I think you know we've been through the the pandemic long enough that I think many of us understand the difference between surveillance and case finding and screening, and for each each one of those is an important public health activity, um, but but the justification for continuing to test people at at the airports, I, I don't think was there, so that's. You know, there's two pieces here. There's the testing piece and the vaccine piece. But I don't think the testing made sense right now. The, the, the piece that's difficult, though, is that I think and I think we'd all agree that in the fall, when we are going to see a COVID surge again, um, it is going to be challenging having taking down all of this infrastructure, whether it be with respect to masking or vaccines or testing in various different venues. Standing that all up again is going to be challenging. So I'm sure, you know, the people who are making these decisions are thinking about that and also thinking about, you know, how challenging it's going to be in three months putting it back in. But right now, is it justifiable in this particular stage? Probably not. Trevor McPherson, uh, what was your reaction to hearing the news about uh, suspending the VAX mandates? Well, I, I think... Um I think what we just heard is that this is um, a complicated issue, and it is a bit of a balancing act for policymakers right now. We do applaud uh, the removal of vaccination requirements for domestic and outbound international travel, and we think that's a step in the right direction, not only for travelers, but also for workers. Um, Although most workers in the Toronto, uh, at Toronto Pearson specifically, are vaccinated, there are still hundreds that are on the sidelines right now. And, um, it, we're in a situation right now where the airport can use every trained individual uh, as possible um, to help help deal with with the current um, delays that that are being experienced. And I was speaking with uh, someone who manages a hotel uh, right at the airport, and they're experiencing a hundred uh, plan unplanned guest room bookings per day due to either canceled flights or other issues related to to their air travel and 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 some of the policies. In place, but we do applaud the government um, for moving on this, uh, and also their recent announcements of hiring um, 644 new recruits for the four largest airports and 865 in in total. And it, it, I really would stress it is it is it is a balancing act between the economy, and we know tur- tourism season is is heating up for the summer, but it, it's also um, it's also how we're putting ourselves forward on the international. Uh, stage in terms of inbound um, businesses, uh, inbound investors, uh, where this is their first experience, uh, and and you know we're concerned about any long term effect that might have on on our reputation for an open for business um, province uh, that we you know like to uh, to talk so much about, and and in many respects we are, and and it's just a matter of uh, you know working through these pieces and. Um, there, I think we've heard this isn't an overnight fix and, and certainly standing something up again in the fall. Yeah, there will be challenges, um, dealing with that. And that's where 
you know, we've been calling on governments at all levels to increase the amount of certainty, reduce the amount of uncertainty uh, so that businesses can uh, properly plan. Uh, and, and whether that pertains to the airport or whether that pertains to other restrictions that may come into place, um, I think we just need a little bit um a higher level of predictability for our businesses. Martin Firestone, uh, how positive of an impact will this make for uh, reducing all of the congestion we've been hearing so much about at Pearson? I'm going to take the other approach. I think it's going to increase ah. the confusion and mayhem, and I'll tell you why. Okay. If the numbers are accurate, there's 5 million unvaccinated Canadians. Domestically, I think travel has to pick up big time on Monday, I would think. People haven't seen family or friends for close to three years. So big increase there. Infrastructure, I've always said, is not keeping up with the travel, yet alone this recent announcement. The most perplexing thing from my perspective is the international one. They are allowing you to leave unvaccinated, but you are going to face tremendous confusion coming back if you are unvaccinated with having to now have your quarantine plan and arrive can dock and everything completely filled. And you wouldn't believe how many people I am having questions from who think they can come back now unvaccinated with no repercussions. Uh, Not the case. So confusion galore here, and it's only going to get worse. So basically, you're inviting a whole lot more passengers to be part of an already congested system. That's the way you're seeing it. I I am. and, And I think I'm accurate in that respect. Plus, it's going to slow down the arrivals even more because, as I said, unvaccinated people weren't coming back into Canada. They are now because they were able to leave unvaccinated. But when they get back, I just don't know how they're going to handle it. I told you last week I was one of those international visitors and visitors, international coming in, and I was metered on a plane, i.e., meaning. 50 people released every 30 minutes until the plane was empty. What's going to happen when you have unvaccinated people coming back in now? Certainly you, the Zoomer radio listener, is welcome to join in on this conversation. We know travel is important to you. As of Monday, the VAX mandates are being suspended for domestic travel on air and on trains and for outbound international flights. Numbers to call 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. Marty, let me ask you this. What if a country still requires, a country other than Canada, still requires proof of double vaccination to enter. So say you're leaving Canada without having to show proof of vaccination, but if you get to a country that requires it, how does that all work? That's a great question. And, you know, so you can get on the plane from that perspective in Canada, but then you can't land. I I happen to think, and someone else can answer this because I don't have the answer, I suspect at the time of boarding pass, you're going to have to show proof of vaccination. If, in fact, the U.S. is still requiring proof of vaccination, you're not going anywhere without it. So it's countries that aren't asking for proof of vaccination that you can now get on an airline in Canada and fly there. I don't have the answer what happens if the country is still proving vaccination. It's got to come up at some point. I, I think, think I think you're right. Probably it does happen at boarding. Uh, Trevor, maybe you want to weigh in on this because uh, I was I'm just thinking about we went to the Dominican back in November. They the Dominican did not require proof of double vaccination to enter the country. Uh, you just had to show uh, a rapid test that you were negative. Um, so it, it's kind of semantics, Trevor, where they're saying you don't have to be double vaccinated to leave. And yet you have to be double vaccinated to land to wherever you're going in some cases. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that does does present a, an additional level of complication and probably not dissimilar to, you know, other requirements that you might have, whether it be visa or, or what have you, um, when visiting other countries. And it's sort of traveler beware, be ready. Yeah. Um, we have, uh, together with, with Pearson Airport, uh, been uh, calling on, on those updates that the federal government had, had uh, promised to the ArriveCan app to to help stream, streamline the arrival process, but this needs to be, you know, advanced as quickly as possible um, as we enter this this busy summer season. 
Let me go over to our doctor, Dr. Barry Pecos, York Region's Medical Officer of Health. Uh, with regard to the Arrive Can app, so you still need to answer the health questions when you're coming back from wherever you've come from. How important is that in the process from a scientific point of view and for reducing spread of the virus? So obviously, you know, in terms of symptoms, it's incredibly important to ask people, and and I'm very hopeful that both leaving and coming, you're going to be asking people. Now, of course, um, anybody who's already showed up to the airport on either side of this equation is going to be denying symptoms likely, but we need to remind people of that. Um, and that is obviously incredibly important because whether it's COVID or something else, um, you know, for, for most of the, most of the planet has been in some form of quarantine for the past two and a half years. And whether it's influenza, RSV, norovirus, variety of other things, there is a lot of transmissible and communicable diseases that are going to be spread. And, um, you know, places where people gather, including transit hubs, are going to be, you know, places where they're going to be able to transmit it. It is very important, I think. And, and of course, you know, there's this, this complex web of requirements around the world. It is important that we're still requiring vaccination um, on the way back in, or if you're not vaccinated, you still have to uh, quarantine. Right. Um, the scientific validity and the, the, the utility of that, um, many people, uh, certainly on the anti-vax side, and many reasonable people will point out, it's only three doses that's really going to have an impact on, you know, whether you're going to be getting the, the virus or, or spreading it, really. So what does two doses really mm-hmm. do? What it does is it provides a, an incentive to, you know, to, to get vaccinated. Most people who are not vaccinated at this point are not going to change their mind. But keeping those kinds of things in place really does have an important social value, not only for now, but for the fall and for the future. So, you know, those are important considerations. Okay, I do want to get to your phone calls, your travel phone calls, what you think about uh, this latest decision by the Trudeau Liberals to lift the vaccine mandates as of Monday. We need to take a quick break. Numbers to call 416-360-0740-1866-744-740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby's off for a couple of days. Joining me today, Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure Inc., Trevor McPherson, president and CEO of the Mississauga Board of Trade, and Dr. Barry Pecos, York Region's medical officer of health. We're getting reaction to the decision by the Trudeau Liberals yesterday to lift the COVID vaccine travel mandates as of Monday. And you also want to get in on the conversation. Let's go to Jerry in Scarborough. Jerry, thanks for waiting. Go ahead. Hi, Libby. I'm going to Greece in late July, and I've had all four of my shots. And I just come out of hospital for, I had some surgery there, and I think they must have tested me at least 10 times while I was in the hospital. And everything came back negative. Now, how is this going to react to me when I come home from Greece on the way back? Okay, Jerry, uh, it's Jane here, by the way. Nice to chat with you. Uh, let's, go to, let's go to Dr. Pecos uh, for an answer on that. Well, you know, thank you for getting all four of your doses, and I hope you recover well. Um, and, and good luck going to Greece, because getting out is going to be as difficult as getting back. I'm traveling shortly as well and, and apprehensive about it. But, you know, coming back, you, you've had the doses you need. So, you know, it's just a matter of putting your information in the Arrive Can app and, and you know, d- dealing with the challenges of logistics. But, you know, you should be fine from a, you know, coming back in, certainly. You won't have to quarantine when you get back, and you won't have to test either. Um, and with four doses, you, you should have, be as well protected as yeah. you can be during your travel. Uh, the other you, quick question yeah, go ahead. I have is that how is this also going to affect our latest headache, the monkeypox? Ah, oh, the monkeypox, yes. Do we need, you know, obviously very few people are inoculated against monkeypox, Dr. Pecos. Yeah, so this is something I don't think most people, uh, almost everyone needs to worry about right now. Very understandable that we're very on edge with a, a new pathogen or at least one that's new to us in Canada. Um, but that is something that really is transmitted by very close contact, you know, uh, over a prolonged period of time, often sexual contact, in fact. And, you know, that is not something you're likely to encounter uh, on an airplane. On the other hand, travel is very relevant to monkeypox, as, as I'm sure all listeners know. 
um, you know, it has been transmitted, uh, you know, across Europe, brought to Canada through travel as any infectious disease is, uh, and travel is very relevant to that disease. So it's not something we're vaccinating for. It's not, or the general population for. It's not something we're testing for at the airports, but travel is related to it. Just not something most people are going to need to worry about. Okay, Jerry, have a great vacation. Let's go to Kent in Cambridge. Kent, you're on Zoomer Radio. Go ahead. Hi, Kent, you're on the air. I think Kent hung up. Well, that gives us an opportunity to get some final thoughts as we go around the table here. In, we are literally on the edge of summer vacation season, summer travel season. Martin Firestone, you always have very prudent advice. Uh, what guidance can you offer? Pack your patience. <laughs> it has been that way the last couple of months. It's only going to get worse. While these are all positive changes, Ultimately, all restrictions hopefully will be removed. And by the way, they're suspended right now, not removed. We suspended leads mm-hmm. you to believe they could be reinstated. Terrible step back if that ever had to happen. I hope it doesn't. So, again, leaving and coming back is not what it used to be. It's a long haul. It's a procedure, and you need your patience. Uh, Martin, before I move on to the other final thoughts, I do have uh, just a a little extra time here for a personal indulgence. Uh, My husband and I are traveling to Quebec City at the end of the month for four days. Uh, In terms of domestic flights, uh, will we be encountering the same kind of backlogs at Pearson as you would for an international flight? Not half as bad, but nothing like it used to be. You could run into some issues, especially the terminal building, both domestic and international, are really backed up. And even something as simple as getting a limo when you come out of the airport, used to be hundreds of them were lined up. There is one coming every 15 minutes these days because they are somewhere. I don't know where they are, but nothing is like it used to be. Oh, so get a loved one to pick you up then. Yeah, but don't tell the loved one to pick you up when your plane wheels hit the ground. It could still be an hour to two hour wait before you're ready to disembark. Good point. Uh, Trevor McPherson, President and CEO of the Mississauga Board of Trade, your, your final thoughts. Yes, I, I uh, completely agree with the comment that, you know, everyone needs to pack their patience. And I'd add to that, uh, as we, you know, should be doing when we visit any service industry these days is, is really, um, to do, do our best to treat uh, those service workers with, with respect mm-hmm. and, and try to, to not let your frustration, uh, be taken out on them. Um, Good and, point. and as far as, you know, this being a, a suspension, absolutely, uh, and I think the business community understands that. I think um, what would be helpful, as as I mentioned prior, is you know what are the uh, metrics uh, that would necessitate bringing back these these restrictions so that businesses can can have a, a little bit of a heads up or or at least understand that this is what it's it's going to take uh, in terms of numbers and spread, et cetera, um, for those uh, to come back so that, that they can plan. And uh, other than that, I would say um, get out there and support um, small business and our tourism businesses uh, most particularly um, that have been really, uh, you know, just Absolutely. hanging on the last couple of years. Okay, good advice. And Dr. Pekas, last uh, 15 seconds to you. Oh, did we lose Dr. Pecos? Okay, well, <laughs> I think Dr. Pecos would say wear your mask <laughs> and uh, make sure you are boosted. And if you can get a fourth shot over 60, he would probably advise you to do that as well. Uh, great show. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm back tomorrow when we tune in to the town. Uh, but first, let's go to Bob Comsick and the news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.